Thanks for tuning in to the Replatform podcast sponsored by Ampliance and Clavio. You listen to myself, James Gerd, and my co-host, Paul Rogers. How are you today, mate? Um, I'm getting there. I'm a little bit jet-lagged, but um, yeah, I'm definitely getting better. I've had about four coffees since um, I arrived back in the UK. Back from the heat of the US into the snow blizzards of the UK. It's a good contrast. Um, and hello to our regular listeners. Thanks for tuning back in. And a warm welcome if you've joined us for the first time. We hope you enjoy the episode. Do subscribe to get new episode alerts. They land every week. And we'd love a like on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, etc. to make us feel all warm inside. So let's introduce our topic and what we're doing today, and then we'll introduce our wonderful guests. So the topic is simplifying headless and composable commerce for, for brands with accelerator solutions. And what we're going to be covering is what does composable commerce really mean for e-commerce businesses? the challenges and business benefits of this type of architecture and how accelerator solutions are benefiting SMEs and speeding up time to market. So really important questions uh, for people around this this area. So let's welcome our esteemed guests. So first off, uh, Rory Dennis, who's a co-founder and GM for North America Ambience. How are you, sir? I am really, really great. Uh, Thank you for asking, James. You're very kind. Delighted to have you on. Uh, For those of uh, people who don't know Ambience well or not come across you, do you want to give them a, a little... Um, flavour for, for what Ampliance is and does. Yes, for sure, James. I'll, I'll try and keep it very brief. Um, essentially, headless content and experience management um, in the new way, um, built around the kind of Mac uh, tech stack and focused primarily on the digital commerce space and delivering value for brands and retailers in, in that space. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and welcome as well, Bernadette Nixon, who's the CEO um, at Algolia. Hi, Bernadette, how are you? Doing well, James. How about yourself? Uh, good, thanks. Thank you for joining us today. So, yeah, same thing. Do you want to give people who might not know Algolia well a flavour for, for what Algolia is and, and what it does for e-commerce businesses? Sure, absolutely. So we're an API-first search and discovery platform. So companies like Louis Vuitton, Under Armour, Lush, and you know many more use us for developing search uh, personalized search experiences on the site, but also um, on the merchandising side as well of their business to make sure that they're curating um, category pages and providing recommendations on, on PDPs so that you've got a common experience, whether you're searching or whether you're browsing, all with the goal of obviously increasing conversion um, because you're providing a great experience for your customers. Wonderful, thank you. And completing our triumvirate of uh, e-commerce technology masters today is Jameis Driscoll, who's the CEO at Elastic Path. Hi, Jameis. James, how are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks uh, Thanks for joining us as well. So, same thing to you. Do you want to give people a, a flavor for Elastic Path and, and where you fit in the market? Yeah, for certain. Well, Elastic Path is a leader in API-first, API-first commerce, um, sometimes called composable commerce. And we focus on is providing brands, particularly multinational, multi-branded brands, uh, manage the complexity of digital in a modern world. And particularly those are companies like Pella Windows or T-Mobile or Decker's brands, um, HarperCollins, Serena and Lilly. They all are thinking about how to engage the consumer in a modern way and do it across the myriad of ways in which you know consumers, buyers, and brands all interact now. And um, with a particular emphasis around management over the product and how the product is presented and consumed. Lovely. Um, yeah, good good trio today. Um, so I'll ask first question and I'll ask it to you, Jameis. Um, mm-hmm. so initially, just in terms of kind of um, 
busting some jargon. Um, can you just define exactly what headless is and also composable from a business perspective? Yeah, for certain. Well, we as an industry do like our terms. And, um, you know, so there certainly are some terms that talk about this. The way we think about headless is headless is largely about the abstraction of the consumer experience or buyer experience from the underlying technology itself. And APIs, of course, are the linchpin in order to make that happen. So think about taking your website away from being intricately fused to the underlying architecture. And there's many ways to approach headless. Um, Traditionally classified between either monolithic architectures, which are now increasingly adding APIs to their stack, or composed architectures, which are natively API-first microservices for delivery of particular things. The difference really that's fundamental is about control. And in a monolithic stack, as Henry Ford would say, you can more or less have any color you like so long as it's black. And there is a set of business logic that's infused in that architecture. And it works for a lot of types of companies. In the composed architecture, businesses now have control completely over the entire uh, way their architecture works and functions. And where that becomes particularly important is that they're able to now get best of breed technologies, services, if you will, that are being built by companies who focus on that. And so now the breadth of capability is incredibly rich. And now brands have the ability, rather than drive their business the way the technology dictates, to assemble or compose how all these APIs interoperate to deliver the consumer experience that's right for their brand and their business. And we're at a moment in the industry where it's about differentiation, it's about merchandising, it's about consumer experiences, all infused with the way the brand wants them to be delivered, because that's, of course, the uniqueness of the business. And so Composed offers brands that level of you know, control that is distinct from just saying headless. Lovely. And um, Rory, so the next question is for you. Um, and this is kind of around the fit of headless and composable for different types of businesses. So I think this approach is widely considered um, to be kind of, um, I guess, relevant to businesses that have got a CTO or a big in-house tech team. Um, and I think a lot you, you might say that's a myth, um, but there's certainly that kind of association. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that this approach is actually suitable for smaller businesses? And what are some of those benefits? Yeah, it's a it's an it's a good question. It's an intricate question. It's probably an intricate answer as well. Um, so I think it's less about whether someone has a CTO or uh, or kind of that. It's more about what are you trying to get out of the thing that you're trying to do. What what are you trying to do? If you're trying to do something, and and the microservice application fits it, you should go ahead and do it, regardless of who you are because it's quicker, faster, easier to deploy. Um, so I think there's a bit of myth around, oh, we have to tackle this headless approach all at once. So, we, you know, it's a big shift, et cetera, et cetera. I think the whole joy or beauty of the approach is that it can be a step-by-step process. You can take your time. You can get to value in discrete pieces. Um, so this is kind of where we come back to the nub of what are we trying to actually achieve at headless? Is there a piece of functionality that doesn't work for you? Let's call it checkout. If it doesn't work for you, why not tackle checkout as a discrete uh, microservice approach and fix checkout? 
and then decide amongst your peers, what's the next thing? What's the next biggest problem that we have? And can it be solved for through a deployment of a, of a microservice and a, and a kind of headless approach? And then, and then tackle that. And over time, what you'll find is you're on a stairway and step by step by step, after five or six steps, you've, you've replaced many of the things that were causing you pain in your business. And you've got a brand new way to do those things that are giving you value at each stage of the deployment. So you're on a kind of stairway to value, if you like, and you're on value from day one. So I think let's get away from the idea that it's big, hard, lift and shift. And let's move towards thinking about solving discrete business problems. Let's get on with that. And then you'll you'll find that instead of instead of being top down, you'll be bottom up as a, oh, my God, look, we do these things in a better way. And now we do more of them in a better way. And now our value, the value that we're delivering is 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 larger overall. Does that kind of make sense, Paul? And then, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I agree with that as well. I think I really like what you've said there around microservices actually being a really good route um, in any uh, scenario. And that, yeah, I think the composable builds are, are quite often much bigger, um, yeah, projects. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with what you said there around microservices. Yeah, like can be just just fix the problem that you're trying to solve for first, and then worry about the worry about the bigger picture. So, Bernadette, from your from your perspective, Algoda and how you work with clients, how you work in this like a headless and composable approach, what are the tangible benefits from an e-commerce team that they wouldn't get in in like you know a monolithic setup and integration? So it, it really boils down to flexibility and speed. Um, at which when you think about it, you know, I, I meet with e-commerce teams um, every single week, uh, just getting back from shop talk, you know, spoke with countless customers over the last three days. And they're all, they, there's a need for speed, <laughs> which intrinsically means that they need to have the ability to be able to pivot. Often it's on the front end because they want to change uh, in response to the market, in response to what a competitor is doing. And often what we hear is, yeah, it takes us a while to do that because we, you know, it, it, you know, we have to, you know, wait for our teams to be able to do the mod and what have you because they're dealing with a monolithic stack. Whereas, as Rory was saying, when you look at these things from a component perspective and the individual functionality or capability, you've got a lot more, a lot more flexibility. The number of times that I was in uh, Vegas at Shop Talk this week, and the number of customers that said, "Wow, I can actually do that in your dashboard." myself I don't have to wait for somebody else to do that that takes me a month right now to do that so I cannot emphasize the speed and flexibility um, more it really is at the heart but I think that this notion of composable architectures really needs to deliver on two promises frankly one it needs to provide a better way for um, developers to be able to have programmable solutions and that's their version of flexibility. But I think for the business, so e-commerce folks, merchandisers, um, they need a different type of flexibility, whereas they need a dashboard that gives them packaged business capabilities so that they can also be in control of their own destiny. So I think that Composable doesn't succeed unless it delivers on both of those promises. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. The, the, I, from my experience, a lot of the time the decision gets made from a technical point of view, 
and the business stakeholders aren't brought along on the journey and that causes friction because they're not perceiving the value even if it might be delivering value to them. What, what would be really useful actually, could you give a tangible example of a packaged business capability so that someone who's, who's listening who's not heard of this before can get it in, like, okay, this is what a packaged business, I can't even say it. I'll use ourselves because I know us, yep. you know, better yeah. than Elastic Path or, or Amplians. So, you know, for example, we say we're an API first search um, platform. So, you know, we have an API, a search API. So that's pretty easy for the techies to, to understand. But then we have over the top, we have a pretty powerful dashboard. And that dashboard aims to democratize search personalization, uh, a whole bunch of other things for the non uh, the non techie user for the for the business users. So merchandisers, for example, will come into our visual editor, use that capability to be able to create their curate their category pages, implement their personalization strategies, take into consideration the business requirement and business relevance. So they want to have their top movers at the top and all of their you know things that are out of stock not even appear. So you don't want to have to program that the merchandisers and the e-commerce teams want to have the ability where they can go in, have a visual way of achieving that. And that would be an example of a packaged business capability. Excellent. Thanks. Yeah, nice and clear. Um, I've got an open question for all of you. Um, play a bit of devil's advocate here because there is there is a certain fear and reluctance um, in some businesses about this because there have been some behind the doors uh, um, murmurings of businesses that have gone down a particular route, whether it's headless or composable, and they might not have thought that through properly in terms of ensuring the whole business is aligned and they've burnt money and projects have been thrown away. And people hear this without context and then that, then start to assume, oh, this, this can't be right, this is, this is a false flag. Why do you think this happens? Like, how can people avoid some of the potential issues of this? Uh, it might be James if you if you head back to what I was saying uh, a few minutes ago. Have you clearly defined what in God's name it is that you're trying to do with the project? You know, you see that some teams come into the projects and they they kind of get wrapped up in the fact that they're going headless or let's call it you know we're doing this mock thing or whatever, but it doesn't have a real a reality for anyone, right? And um, because uh, to Bernadette's point, there are so many people involved in in creating a, an experience, for example, right? Merchandising has got its own uh, set of requirements that it needs to deliver on in an, in an SLA to its business. And it's it's a little different from what tech has to deliver, um, but it's equally important. So instead of kind of, I, th I think where the fail is, is at this kind of project level when people don't really understand what they're doing. Someone might pick up the ball and say, let's run to headless or mock or whatever the project is, but there's not a clear understanding of why they're doing it, what, who, this, who they're solving it for and who they're serving and, and who they should be serving is, is the business, right, of uh, improving the business outcomes of, of the organization, which is what we're trying to do here. Yeah. So, James, I can see you nodding away. Do, do you have a similar perspective on this? We certainly do. Um, and I think one of the, as every industry learns, one of the things that we've been watching very closely the last path and moving on is, in fact, fully composed architectures have done something which is more shifting the application risk back onto the customer, where the monolith was saying, again, we'll deal with all the integration of all the components. And maybe the components were 
average across the board, but the value prop was it was all integrated. And so the need for control and the need for developing unique commerce experiences has led people down um, a composed architecture path. And in that, though, of course, the business inherits the integration, the uptime, the availability, the performance, and also this, um, you know, one of, one of the customers has commented to me in the past is, you know, I can do anything I want, and that's both good and bad. Um, and so there is, as you accurately highlight, James, a latent concern of, I want the control, but what about everything that comes with it? And so what we're doing as an industry and as partners here is starting to step up and take our take back our fair share of the application risk, right? And getting customers to a, you know, a composed future without that concern. And that runs the gamut from how do I build it? Uh, how do I design it? Um, how do I operate it? How do I make sure it's protected? And our opportunity as an industry and as partners is to help um, help customers realize a composed architecture without those those concerns and fears that you accurately accurately re- uh, recognize. So that um, that leads me very nicely onto my next question, which is: So Elastic Path are now building out pre-composed solutions. So mm-hmm. how does this work in layman's terms? Um, is this a form of an accelerator? Yeah, what does it mean to the merchant and time to market? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what type of business is this for? Yeah, well, uh, we often use an analogy to describe this. Um, and uh, as a father with lots of kids, I have very big buckets of Legos in my basement, as I, subs- I suspect many of us do. And if you were to ask me to go build a castle out of that, I would probably get um, writer's block, if, if you will. I guess that'd be Legos block. Because there's a lot to figure out and map and control. But if you told me there was a Lego kit available that helped me get to a castle with instructions and proven and designed by Lego masters who understood what that's all about, well, that could be really interesting and fun and de-rest. What we're doing collectively as um, a set of partners to represent best-in-class capabilities across what is commonly required uh, in in digital is is to build out those Lego kits, if you will, and to help customers understand an outcome. And much like those kits, our thinking is not to deliver a die-cast plastic castle, but to start the market in a way that they can now get safely over onto a proposed architectural future, where they then have the flexibility and freedom to take control over that and evolve it as their business requires. To what Rory was saying earlier, these are outcome-focused, business results-driven capabilities that are intended to get businesses over to success and then accelerate them on their journey onward. So they include things like reference architectures. They include things like um, pre-built integrations between our uh, our products. They include methodologies for discovery deployment, and they include um, support on the other side, not just over our individual pieces, but over the collective whole. So there's single place to call and get and get the support because nobody wants to be in a position where let's just say commerce isn't firing and they're now talking to lots of different people who each say their piece of the puzzle is working that's not delivering the value to customers that we all you know subscribe to so that's the layman's um, example of how to think about this what is ampliance in a word it's freedom The freedom to build a digital experience as limitless as your vision. Create, preview, schedule and manage all your content in one easy place. 
Find out more at Ampliance.com. Ampliance. Experience freedom. And um, slightly loaded question, but I guess um, with platforms like Shopify Plus and big commerce kind of coming up market um, and trying to position themselves in a similar way, and they've obviously got kind of big ecosystems around them. How does how do you then um, differ from those? Like, what are some of the advantages of your kind of pre-composed route versus the, these platforms? Well, I'll jump in, and then I'd love to open it up to Bernadette and Rory. Um, you know, the way that we think about this, it comes back to how we describe the difference between headless and composable. Um, headless is about being able to abstract the front end. Composable is about full control over the business logic and how the platform operates to ultimately deliver what we want to deliver to a consumer or a business buyer. So a... Um, a bolt-on, if you will, or a simplified integration to a fairly black box core um, can work for a lot of a lot of you know customers in the market. What we're offering is something fundamentally different, which is complete control over the entire architecture itself to be described and built in the way that a brand wants to engage a consumer. And um, that's not the same as a simplified attachment. That is about sort of expanding how the architecture has to work in order to deliver what the businesses are asking for. And so let, I want to move on to, to, to talk about what pre-composed solutions really mean. I'd be interested from an Algolia and Ampliance point of view, obviously, because your, your products are part of the, these kits. So the, the so James, Elastic Path described as business-ready solutions built on top of, of your commerce cloud. So I'd love to walk now through what that really means. So bon, Bernadette, how about we start with you? What what does um, a business-ready solution mean for Algolia within this architecture? What's pre-integrated, basically, for a customer versus what do they have to do once they've switched it on? So the integration means that you've got um, premium search capabilities there out of the box. It also means because we're integrated um, with Elastic Path that we then it's easier to get the pipeline of data um, so that we can index that so that then we can serve up those results, for example, to your customers. So, and that takes, you know, that can take, you know, depending upon the shop and the quality of the data can take a while. So the fact that that's already cleaned, been put into, you know, Elastic Path, then, you know, that's exposed and ready for us to take and index it becomes far easier for a customer then to focus on what they really want to focus on, which is not the indexing of the data. It is really the relevance so that they can get the sort relevance, the, the tuned, the personalized experience so that you know as we're shopping for I don't know sneakers I get you know dusty pink and you know you get you know Air Jordans so that you know that personalization is where people can really truly put their um their focus and their effort. So is there is there I, I know you know things vary from project to project but is there typically then a a cost and efficiency saving for a business because there are things already set up, so it's reducing some of that custom development time for integration. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Because, and I think that going back to one of your earlier questions, I think the biggest difference with moving to a composable architecture and one of the reasons why people fail is because they they have to mentally change their model. Because in the old monolith, it was all about it was all about a thinking architecture because you had to get it right. 
up front first time. And then after that big body of work was done, then you could start to, you know, do your limited amount of tailoring in your particular world. Now with Composable, it's an iterative process. And so I think that's the biggest difference. We don't expect anything to be done in a big bang. That's where the majority of risk comes in. We expect an iterative process. And the fact that we're pre-integrated as part of these solutions means that you can get off to a quick start and then you can, you know, also then continue and get into your iterating quicker. Yeah, that's a nice, nice distinction to pull out. And I guess, Rory, same question for, yeah. from Ampliance's point of view. Sure. Ampliance has a range of different uh, you know, products within its overall suite. What does pre-integration mean in this context? What, what, do pe- what can people get out of the box versus having to do customization configurations? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, look, it's very, very simple with Algolia, for example. It's uh, uh, Algolia's OEM done on the Ampliance platform. So if you choose to turn that on, you get the ability ability to index your content as you're creating it in the same interface. So you don't need to leave Ampliance backend or Algolia backend to do a task that you should just be able to do in your content anyway. Because as you are creating content, chances are you want to index that and you want to uh, be able to tag it and um, and add uh, anything that you want to right there in situ at the time of creation. So in the old world, that would have involved two separate workflows, two separate processes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, and probably in in some projects, someone to come in and, and weld those two things together to make it to make it talk to each other. So, um, I I would say probably the the easiest and quickest thing is to to have um the different functions that you need available in one dashboard that are calling the services you need when you need them. The the complexity that takes out of the the marketer the merchandiser role is 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 quite something. And, and is the full product suite pre-integrated? Because I know that part of this is is about having something that that suits specific business types. You've got different types of pre-composed. Yeah, suite. sure. On the on the Algoli one, it is not. It is a sub a subset of the most relevant features that you would need in an Algolia instance if you wanted to say go on the personalization journey with uh, Algolia and do some of the more complex things that they do. Then we just push you across to the Algolia team, and they would stand you up for that. Okay, and from an Ampliance point of view, because you obviously you've got all the content experience, you've got dam capabilities, uh, a part like the dam capabilities pre-integrated as well, or is it more on the content experience? Uh, it's more on the content experience. Uh, that's kind of really where the yeah. where the rework and the and the wasted effort and all of that was uh, was highest. So that's why we we went and tackled that first. Okay. Yeah, understood. Um, and uh, uh, another question. Uh, directed back to you, James. I think this is going to be an important one on people's minds. Is you touched on it about the support and having an overarching support, and then having relationships to the different parties. How does that work? How do the licenses and agreements work? If I'm a client using a pre-composed solution, who do I have a relationship with? You know, who who owns my relationship? Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's maybe separate just the concept of a relationship a little bit, um, and I'll parse it into two different areas. Then I'll I'll come back to the question. There are two dimensions of the relationship. One is the relationship for the full architecture. How do I make sure that my pre-proposed solution is running, it's up, it's available, it's performant? And then there's the relationships we also have often with customer success or various teams to leverage the expertise of each and every provider that's in my my solution. And let's maybe separate those. In a pre-composed solution, 
we encourage because part of the value prop of selecting this is for everyone to have a relationship with the domain expertise that's resident in our collective organizations. And that's a good thing because people should be talking to Algoli about how to make search and, and discovery excellent and implants on how to really experience content to its fullest. Um, and to Elastopath on how to merchandise the product and deliver product experiences in a way that are different. And that's why uh, someone would select an architecture. Then there's the question of more runtime support, production support, if you will. And from the customer's point of view, they want to make sure that they've architected the solution correctly, that it's being deployed fully, and that ultimately when it's live and processing production commerce, that typically in that relationship, they want to have a single person to call, right? Because the last thing a customer wants is to have multiple providers say, oh, our piece is working and must be the must must be the other player, right? That's not a place for a customer to be. No. So for Elastopath in that environment, we have you know stepped up with our um, our composable commerce experience assurance offering to be frontline support over the composed architecture. And what we do is we take on the full architecture of the customer. We understand it, we monitor the integration points, we look at all of those things. And if there is commonly known as a step one or an event or something's not working, the customer knows they can call Elastopath. And then we work on their agency across the partner ecosystem. That includes with their system integrator partner, that includes Algolia and Ampliance and others to make sure that the customer answer is being resolved. And that's really coming back to the question you asked earlier about the concern and risk over a composed architecture. That's our, um, our peace of mind offering, and, you know, our ability to let customers know that they are going to be supported across the continuum. And um, so, so uh, to you, Jameis, um, in terms of some of the pre-composed bits that we've talked about um, over the last few minutes, um, what's the impact on the SIs? So James has listed an example here. So my planet for D2C commerce, um, how would this impact an agency picking this up um, and having to maintain the code? Mm-hmm. Well, we think SIs are um, in my planet too as well. Um, and especially they, they, are, um, they are domain experts you know, as well, as are we. And there's a unique perspective that each of them offer on requirements. And one of the propositions we offer collectively in a, you know, in a, in a composable commerce architecture is we want to leave room for innovation um, and leave room for others to create um, solutions and offerings that exceed the sum of the parts. And system integrators are a key part of that. Uh, and so um, we view them as integral to the solution and ultimately what's offered to market. And we'll find with different domain expertise and points of view and perspectives that there's room for our different SIs to bring their own intellectual property to bear to market and to create offerings that I think collectively amongst us, we might not have envisioned. And isn't that wonderful? So we definitely view a system integrated partner as a, you know, a key part of the overall, overall solution. Yeah. And um, to, to you again, Jeremy, so I realise a lot of my questions have been directed to you. Um, it hasn't been intentional. Um, in terms of, do you think there's any level of kind of vendor lock-in with that? So, um, again, James has given an example here. Like if someone wanted to uh, swap out Algolia for Clayview or, you know, Ampliance for Bloomreach or equally uh, 
move from elastic path to big commerce, do you think that the pre-composed solution um, impacts that? Mm-hmm. Well, um, honestly, no. Um, because, and I, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, one of the things that I hope we see leave in the market is the concept of vendor lock-in derived from simply technology. Um, I think if there is a concept of lock-in, it's because each of us as providers is delivering value every day and we're earning the trust from customers to the point that they can't imagine operating without the value that we offer and continuous delivery and those types. That is to me where lock-in should come in around we're earning, and this is what the SaaS promise is all about, we're earning the customer's trust daily. And that's the delivery of value and new functionality. So as opposed to, well, because we built this complicated architecture, they can't, you know, my customer can't leave. Well, that's, I would, it definitely is lock-in. Um, <laughs> but we would like it to be more volunteering by choice to sustain a valuable relationship. So. Yeah, that's that a great point, James. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's it, the idea around lock-in is 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 hopefully more and more dated, and it's like when we think about it, it's this the shift, this movement is is all about putting power back in the hands of the consumer, the buyer, right? Uh, where previously you were locked into a long-term contract with the monolith or behemoth or whatever you want to call those guys, um, and you got what you got from the company on their schedule, um the idea now is that you get what you get on your schedule from vendors who are constantly innovating uh, week on week, uh, agile delivery, delivering function improvement, enhancement week to week to week to week to week. Every single release is, is a better experience for you as a customer. So the idea is, well, why would you leave? Because companies like us are spending millions every year on making the experience better for everyone. And, and if you don't like it, if, if that doesn't suit you and you want to go somewhere else, then it's relatively easy to do that. That's fine. But the motivation is different now. The motivation is be best in class, be the best that you can deliver for your customer and let them know it. And they'll be like, okay, I get it. You guys are investing so much in this product every month. Why would I leave? Uh, because um, the, the grass isn't greener, you know, it's like uh, they, the, the, the supplier that I'm using is really investing in, in making this the best it can possibly be. So, yeah, yeah, I do get that. Having a value proposition, um, yeah, obviously in, encouraging people to, to to continue with that solution makes sense. I guess the key thing is just always. I love the devil's advocate role on this podcast. Is yeah. <laughs> that, that one of the objections I come across a lot with with clients is. Oh, well, it feels complex if I want to change. Likely it is they won't want to change. But the risk mitigation is what would happen. So when when it's if you've completely composed it from scratch without any pre-composed solution, that feels, I guess, conceptually more flexible. Is that the case? Or is it just that pre-composed simply means we've got more foundations, but you can change what you want in the future regardless? I think that's a better way to think of it. Yeah. We've got more foundations. Yeah, that's it. And and coming back to the SI point earlier was that. Look, what you want your system integrated to be doing is value add work for you, right? Things that move the needle for your business, not the same old. Let's let's stand up this integration again. Oh, we did it three weeks ago. You know what I mean? It's like uh, get get that low paying, a low value work away, and and get to the high value and needle moving stuff, right? That's what you want from your from your systems integrated, and then you want to change that relationship from a 
from a, a cost to a to an advantage, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know that the types of solutions that you're all providing, especially the e-commerce platform, people generally don't want to change that uh, within a couple of years. Search, merch, and, and CMSs are normally proper RFPs and commitments because people have bought into the solution. But it's things that I guess there's additional third parties like review engines. They change more frequently. I've seen people swap in and out. They've mm-hmm. got to the point where they've exhausted the functionality or they don't like um, some of the limitations. And I guess that's a key question I would ask to, to, to all of you is, how easy is it to plug and play at that level in a pre-composed solution? Uh, is there any difference to just an open composable solution? Um, I don't want to hog this. Bernadette, do you want to go first? I, I have a no, I don't think there's any. I mean, look, the, there's a there's a there's definitely a um, there's definitely a notion of orchestration when you're in a composable architecture. Um, so there is no limitation, and that's why if you look at the Mac Alliance, the A in, in the Mac acronym, acronym is API, so API first. So therefore, you're taking out one API, you're plugging in another. So um, theoretically, there isn't really much of a, a difference. As Rory said, you've got more of the foundations there, so you can get a quicker start with these precomposed yeah. solutions. But there's, but that's not a lock-in in my, mm-hmm. you know, if I go back to my old, when I was a, you know, uh, on purely on the IT side, I don't view that as lock-in. I just view that as a helping hand that they're giving me right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction because um, people do ask these questions. Mm-hmm. And on often, especially when people have come from a a more um, kind of old school technological setup where they're used to that kind of limitation, it can sometimes be hard conceptually to adjust to, well, actually, no, that's not a barrier anymore. Um, So, well, the good news for all of you is we've we've asked all of our annoying questions now. Um, (laughs) I'm sure that there'll be other questions in people's minds that come off the back of this discussion. So it'd be great to hear from each of you internally if people wanted to reach out who do they reach out and how? And also, are there any useful resources that can help to explain um, in more detail what these pre-composed solutions mean? So, um, so James, from Elastic Pass point of view, like, how could people reach out if they did want to learn more about this? Well, you can certainly find us on our website, elasticpath.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at email, james.driscoll at elasticpath.com. Again, um, you know, we think we're in a moment of market dialogue. Um, this is new, and so and this is emerging. What has been incredible is to see the acceleration in our industry around this being the chosen way that people want to move forward, and now sorting through what it means. And so, I think we're at a moment of education and communication in the market, which is so important. So, welcome any any dialogue around it. Fantastic, and Bernadette, from your point of view. Sure, absolutely. I mean, Algolia.com or our YouTube channel, uh, or you can reach me at Bernadette.Nixon at Algolia.com. Um, we'd love to engage in, in any conversations. I, I'd probably like to leave the the, the conversation with um, actually a Gartner stat that I discovered earlier this year, which was that by 2025, more money will be spent on building composable apps than building the monoliths. So I just thought that was, you know, 2025 will be here in the blink of an eye. So I don't know that we've quite crossed the chasm, but we're um, we're we're getting pretty close, I think. So uh, yeah, love to love to engage in conversation. Cool. Thank you, and Rory, about um, from Ampliance's point of view. 
Yeah, I agree with Bernadette. We are just coming up the other side of that cliff on the chasm, and we will uh, we'll breach that uh, pretty soon, in my opinion. Uh, two things here to say, if I might, James. One, Ampliance Resources, very good. Ampliance.com forward slash resources. You'll find a ton of information there. Um, you'll find a ton of information on the Mac Alliance. If I could give a plug to the uh, uh, to the Mac Alliance organization, it's macalliance.org. Um, really good uh, information on the companies involved, the um, outcomes they'll help you deliver, um, and the companies who've been through um, Mac type projects. So you can go and see, well, who's actually done this in in the real in the real world, and, and what outcomes have they had? So, um, re- really good resource over there. When I first heard about the Mac Alliance, I thought it was a new Gillette razor. So I was. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've given up shaving, as says Jameis. So I think we're uh, falling into that Thanks. trap. Thanks to, to all three of you. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your thoughts and perspectives. And to anyone who's listening, uh, you know, they've given you a contact. If you do want to reach out, if you want to probe further, if you want to challenge anything, if you want to ask questions, please do. Thanks for listening. Um, do keep an eye out for, for our next episode. We drop one every week. And do let us know of any topics you'd love to hear us or any guests you think would be an amazing people to get onto the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed already, we'd love for you to do so. Thanks very much and take care. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.